Cheers. Hello, hello. It's good to be with you all. Um, this mic is my fault because I didn't think to come up for a pastor mic, so that's on me. So I'll take the blame for that. But just like Jordan said, my name is Taylor. I'm the lucky husband of Michaela, who's back there. Everybody say hey to Michaela. Hey. She could be hanging out with our wonderful one-year-old daughter, Adeline, tonight, but decided to come join us. So we got a picture of the fam up there. There's Adeline. That was a few months ago. That's at Easter. So she's got a lot more teeth and a lot more attitude. And guys, she's already figured out how to tantrum. She's one years old, and she's got this single tear down where she just like, we say no, and she just starts crying. It, it's brutal. Like, how do you parent that? She's stupid cute and then can cry on command. Like, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. But it's my, I'm just pumped to be with you guys tonight to get into God's word. God's word has changed my life, and I know it will change your life as well as we meet with Jesus. So I got a question for y'all tonight. Chloe asked her earlier, how are y'all doing? Good, good. There's a lot of goods. It's a very monotone good. You guys know that, like, not great is okay? You can say, like, yeah, I'm not great today. Life isn't going good. It's actually kind of crappy. Like, because you know why? Because life gets crappy. The world we live in is broken. And there's a load of suffering happening around us constantly that gives us a window into that. Let's just think about two types of suffering here. We got natural suffering. We have brokenness going on in the world where we see derechos, we see COVID, we see our man Nathan. Where's Nathan at? He broke his leg. What the heck, man? That's not fun. That's suffering right there. We see a lot of that famine, drought. Our world is broken. This good world that God has created is broken because of sin. And we feel that. And maybe if uh, you haven't gotten a broken leg and you were able to, you weren't here when the derecho hit, you've been able to avoid some of that natural suffering. But I know you've hit relational suffering, right? Whether it's something that you've done to somebody or something that something, someone's done to you, you've experienced that. Whether it's just like friend drama, whether it's family drama, whether it's family abuse, that's real stuff, y'all. Racial injustice, it's real. And something that hit us all really close to home just a few weeks ago were when the lives of Eden Montang and Vivian Flores, Flores were taken from them when they're on the way to Somersault. And that's, that's brokenness, man. That's suffering. That's heavy. So we, we have to ask ourselves the question, what do we do with suffering like that? And a few natural responses, these are good responses, they're not all bad in themselves, is we tend to feel it, we try to try to fix it, and then forget it. It's normal when we lose a loved one to feel that, right? That's pain. We're feeling it. We miss our loved one. Or when we see relational brokenness, we want to go out and try to fix that. We want to heal wounds that are between people. And then sometimes we know there's a lot of suffering going on. You can get on Facebook. You can get on Instagram. You can see the brokenness constantly, and it can be overwhelming. And sometimes you got to just set that aside so that you can keep living, right? And that, that's a personal thing for me, y'all. 
my dad, he was diagnosed with a disease called ALS just two months ago. And if you know anything about ALS, it's a muscle deteriorating disease that basically shuts off your muscles one by one um, until it's going to take his life. There's no cure for it, and that's heavy. And so me and my family, we've been in that cycle. We feel it. We try to fix things. We try to forget it. But we get stuck if we're in that cycle because we can't fix it. We can't fix it, right? So what are we supposed to do? All we can do in that cycle is get stuck and stuck. And the problem is without Jesus, there's no other way to respond. So what are we as Christians supposed to do with suffering? We'll get there, but first we're going we're gonna to ask maybe a more helpful question right off the bat. What is God doing in the world's suffering? What is God doing in our suffering? If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis 37. Um, we're going to be in the life of Joseph tonight. We're going to try to see G Jesus in the life of Joseph now, if you know anything about Joseph, his story takes up 13 chapters in Genesis. Now, that is a lot of Bible, a lot of Bible. And so we are going to be moving quickly, and we're going to be jumping through his story pretty fast. So we're going to skip some things. The verses are going to be up on the screen, but if you, like, can't keep up with the page turning, totally cool. Let's just enter in and get a window into a life that's plagued with suffering and how God is at work in it. So right off the bat, Genesis 37, 1 through 4. Verse 1. Jacob, that's Joseph's father, lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. So you notice right there, Jacob's got two wives. That causes drama. We'll see it. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. The brothers brought a bad report of the brothers to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Daddy's little favorite. More drama. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph is the second youngest of 12 sons, and only him and his little brother Benjamin are born of his dad's true love, Rachel. That's another wife. Lots of drama here, guys. He's his dad's favorite and likes to point out the bad things that his brothers are doing. So it's really not hard to see why Joseph doesn't get along with his brothers from other mothers, right? Then Joseph has a dream. Now dreams to the ancients, they were kind of seen as a window into the future that the gods were letting people know like, hey, this is going to happen. And so Joseph, he dreams his brothers will bow down to him like a king one day. Now, anyone have younger siblings in the room? Raise your hands. Yeah. So imagine if your uh, little brother or sister came up to you and you're like, hey, guess what? You're going to grovel at my feet one day. Sounds great, right? Uh, no. <laughs> That's not going to go over well. And uh, it didn't go over well for Joseph. 
They hate him even more for the dream. Then he has another dream, but this time his mom and dad are bowing down at his feet too, and it even pisses his dad off. Okay, you're, you made your dad mad even though you're the favorite. So he's like really arrogant, really full of himself, and he's just flaunting it right now. So nobody really likes him. Later on, his brothers, they need to go attend to the family sheep, and Jacob has Joseph go check on them a bit later. And Joseph, he's, he's going through the desert. He gets a bit lost, and he runs into this random guy, maybe not so random, though, who points him in the right direction to where his brothers are at. And from afar, his brothers can see him when he's coming. He's flaunting his fancy coat that his dad made for just for him, and uh, it drives them nuts. Their anger just boils over, and they're ready to kill him right then and there. Like, that's a major overreaction, but that's just the reality. That's where they were at. They say, here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. Throw him in a pit and then say that a fierce animal has devoured him and see what comes of his dreams. This is as their little brother is approaching him. The oldest brother steps in and tries to redirect this evil plan, and he convinces his brothers to just throw Joseph in the pit, okay? They keep it simple. They don't kill him. They're just going to leave him in there, probably for dead. When Joseph finally comes up to him, they grab him, rip off his coat, and throw him into the pit. And then, guess what they do? Sit down and eat. You get hungry when you throw your brother in a pit, I guess. So they just sit down, eat some food like it's no big deal, and uh, they just leave him there to rot. Then they see some merchants that just are happening to come by them at this point in time and check out what happens next. Chapter 37, verses 26, 28. Then Judas said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother? Now jo Judah is the fourth oldest in this family. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers listened to him. Now Judah's, uh, he's not winning the older brother of the year award for this idea. Uh, He's at least saying, like, let's not kill him. Let's just make some money off him, right? I mean, that's a better deal. Then the traders, Midianite traders, passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took him to Joseph. So the older brother, Reuben, comes back and uh, is trying to rescue Joseph, but uh, sees that he's not there. He was meaning to come back. That was the whole point of him, like, redirecting them. And he's distraught. He's mad. But then he just kind of gives in to his brother's plot. And they go, and they kill a goat, dip it, Joseph's robe in the, in the blood, and then just show it to their father, Jacob, and say, here, we found this robe. Is it Joseph's? Is it your son's? Playing, totally playing dumb. And Jacob totally falls for it. He's distraught. He's destroyed. He tears his clothes and mourns while refusing to be comforted. Meanwhile, Joseph is being sold off like cargo in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of the Egyptian pharaoh. 
Now, a lot's happened. Can you imagine the emotional state Joseph is in right now? He was violated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold off into slavery, and is now in a land 500 miles away from home. He's at rock bottom. He must hate his brothers for doing this to him, hate himself for being so arrogant and dumb. And maybe he's even like mad at God for giving him the dreams in the first place because that's really what got him into trouble in the first place, right? But what comes next might surprise you. Jump into chapter 39, verses 2 and 4. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So quick summary of what just happened. Joseph's family, they're seriously messed up, right? Can we all agree on that? Seriously messed up. His suffering came as a result of a lot of built-up family brokenness. But between the dreams... The random guy leading Joseph to the way his brothers were and the timing of the slave traders, it seems like God is steering Joseph to this moment in time where he then is with Joseph in his slavery and causes him to succeed. Causes him to succeed and thrive in a place that Joseph doesn't want to stay in. Now, are you in a place that you want to, don't want to stay in right now? Maybe it's a summer class that you just can't wait to get out of or a job that's just sucking the joy out of life or it's family drama, friend drama. Is it possible that God actually has you right where he wants you? That he's leading you in the way that you are going? Could God be actually trying to teach you something in all of this, in this situation that you don't want to stay in? Maybe he desires to humble you, to use your suffering to build your character and grow you and actually lead you to some success. Just an idea. Let's jump back into the life of Joseph because things are they're going to get even worse for Joseph. Hard to believe, but it's true. Chapter 39, 6 through 10. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Don't know why that's relevant. We'll find out quick. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. That's a good thing, right? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. Joseph refuses refuses to sin against God and Potiphar by sleeping with Potiphar's wife, even with her constant day-after-day pursuit of him. He is choosing to deny this temptation and remain faithful. He should be honored in this circumstance, right? 
but he actually gets condemned. What happens next is Potiphar's wife waits for a day that it's just her and Joseph in the house. She grabs him by the coat, rips it off of him, and he hightails it out of the house. He's just like, deuces, I'm out of here. This girl's crazy. Which was a good call, right? But the problem is, Potiphar's wife used the robe as evidence that actually Joseph was trying to rape her. She goes and turns the whole house, all the servants that Joseph worked with against him, and then turns the guy, the, the, the master that he's been faithful to against him as well. And Potiphar's angry. He takes Joseph, throws him in the king's prison without a second thought. No question asked. Joseph is totally innocent in this circumstance. He's falsely accused and wrongly condemned without any chance to defend himself. He's been thrown into prison, which is really like another pit. And if I were him, and maybe you could agree with me here, I'd be angry at God. I'd feel alone, forgotten, abandoned. Let's keep reading. 39, 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. Joseph might have felt abandoned, but was that reality? No, that wasn't the reality. It wasn't true. The Lord Yahweh, the God of Joseph's fathers, was with him, showing him steadfast love and causing him to succeed in a grim circumstance. After some time, Joseph made some new friends in the prison. You know, when you're at prison, you make friends. I haven't been there, but I'm sure you do. Um, and they were the Pharaoh's cupbearer and chief baker. They had gotten into some trouble and sent to the prison and put under Joseph's care. And one morning, he's checking in on them, and they look all out of sorts. And so he asks them, what's going on? And so he says to them, we've had these dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not all, inter do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell me. So they tell him his dreams. The cupbearer dreams of this this vine that's got these three branches makes some grapes, some brambles of grapes. I think that's what you call them, right? Brambles. Um, and he uses those to make some wine for Pharaoh. And Joseph basically tells him, yeah, man, that's a good dream. You're going to be back in your post with Pharaoh, working for him soon, out of this prison, and everything's good. And so he just requests this one thing from the cupbearer. Like, I've given you this good news, so can you do me, do the, do me this one solid, man? He says, just remember me. Talk to the Pharaoh about me. And in verse 40, or chapter 40, verse 15, he says, For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Now this is the first time that Joseph brings up like that he's angry and sad and frustrated about the fact that he was sold into slavery and he's ended up in this prison. So hopefully the cupbearer can like help him out and put it in a good word for him to the Pharaoh. So then the baker is pumped when he hears 
the dream that, the interpretation of the dream that Joseph just told. So he tells Joseph his dream. And of course, it's got some baked goods because that's what's going on. And he's uh, got three baskets of baked goods he's stacking on his head, which takes some talent. They're all for Pharaoh. But the sketchy thing is that there's birds that are swooping in and eating the bread. And I don't know about you, but uh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound good. Birds and dreams aren't a good thing. And for the baker, it wasn't a good thing. Joseph basically tells him, yeah, man, that means in three days you're going to be hanged by Pharaoh, and then birds are going to eat your flesh. Sorry. So moral of that story, don't dream about birds, okay? <laughs> Please. And uh, if you go home and you dream about birds tonight, don't tell me that I didn't warn you because it's just not good. It's not good for your health. So three days later, what Joseph says will happen actually happens. The cupbearer, he's back with Pharaoh. Everything's good. And the baker, we don't need to say it. We know. Yeah, not good. But the cupbearer forgets Joseph. Two years later, Pharaoh himself has two dreams that nobody can figure out. And that's when the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph. He's been rotting in a prison for two years. And then the cupbearer remembers him. He's got to feel like a jerk, right? Total jerk. And so they get Joseph. They bring him to Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh asks him, can you tell me what this dream means? And uh, he says to the Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And long story short of the dream is that there's going to be a famine that's going to hit Egypt. But before the famine, there's going to be seven years of plenty. And this is definitely going to happen because Pharaoh had two dreams, so God has locked it in. So because of this, Joseph suggests that the Pharaoh selects a discerning and wise man. And I, and I got to believe that Joseph's kind of leaning into this, like, bro, I just told you my dream. Guess who's discerning and wise? That's me. Um, and set him over Egypt to plan for the famine. To which Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this? And who is the spirit of God? Talking about Joseph. And Pharaoh makes Joseph his right-hand man right then and there. So at this point, Joseph is 30 years old. He was sold off into slavery at 17. So it has been 13 years since he has been sold off into slavery. And at least two of those years, he's been in prison. Now... He basically runs one of the most powerful nations of the time. Now, that's, that's a big curveball. Joseph goes from the lowest point of his life, being a slave-gone prisoner, to being the equivalent of a prime minister. And in this, we see that God is actually with Joseph and for Joseph when he is falsely accused, abandoned, and forgotten. Joseph was always right where God wa wanted him to be. And God's purposes and plans succeeded. They worked. They happened. Joseph's imprisonment actually led to his place of fulfillment. Do you feel that God has abandoned you when others have? It may be tempting to think that he doesn't love you. Maybe he has forgotten you and doesn't have a purpose for you. But maybe 
the suffering you've experienced or are experiencing right here, right now, is an essential step in God's journey for you to lead you to your place of fulfillment, which is ultimately himself. Back to the life of Joseph, or actually back to his family. And so this is when we're going to really fly because there is like another, I don't know, 10 chapters at this point, And y'all don't got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. So we're going we're gonna to get the high points here. His brothers and father, they're still in Canaan. And the famine was struck, the famine has struck their land as well. And they are out of grain. So the brothers get sent to Egypt to buy some grain. And guess who they run into? Nobody's going to guess. Joseph, that's right. A hundred points. Uh, once Joseph sees them, he's struck with the memory of his dreams. It must have hit him like a flood. His brothers are coming to him. He's in this position of power. They're coming to him out of a place in need. He could have said, bow down to me right now, and his dreams are fulfilled right in that moment. Would have been tempting. But they don't recognize him. And Joseph's frustrated, frustrated with them, which makes sense. And so he accuses them of being spies. They say, no, no, we, we aren't spies. We are honest men. We come from a family, and all of us except for two brothers are with us here. One has died. Who could that be? And the other is with our father. Joseph must be struggling to keep it together at this moment, right? When he hears them say, like, they're honest men, whatever, <laughs> But he keeps his cool, and he says he's going to test them on their words. Fast forward, he sends them home to get his, their brother Benjamin and bring him back to him. Basically, Joseph puts his brothers through a test to see if they will give up Benjamin to protect their own skin. That just skipped, like, a lot right there. So go back, read Genesis. It's legit. It's sweet. They, Joseph puts them through this test, and Judah, remember, he's the one whose idea it was to soul, sell Joseph off into slavery. He's the one that actually steps up to protect Benjamin and explains that if Joseph takes Benjamin, it will literally kill their father. Like, his, his father just can't handle it. After losing Joseph, one of their brothers has actually been in prison under Joseph's care for this whole time while they went back in a way. And uh, if they lose Benjamin, Jacob's just going to keel over. And at this point, Joseph breaks down and reveals himself to his brothers. It's been 15 years now since his brothers have sold him into slavery. Their act, their singular act of selling him into slavery has caused an immense amount of trauma for Joseph and suffering. They don't deserve anything from him. They don't deserve his generosity or his forgiveness. They deserve his anger, his distrust, and wrath. They must be freaking out, right? Like, oh my goodness, this is our brother that we sold into slavery. Worried about jo what Joseph will do, and he says this. Genesis 45, 4 through 8. I'll make sure. Sweet. So Joseph said to his brothers, 
come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Like what? Because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve, life, preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He says it three times. God sent me here. God sent me here. Joseph was separated for his, from his family for 15 years. And it took him 15 years to see the literal fulfillment of his dreams. But God, he saw the bigger picture the whole time. He knew that Joseph would go through some terrible stuff. But Joseph's suffering resulted in an immeasurable amount of good for his family, for Egypt, and the surrounding area. God was sovereign over the family drama and his brother's sin and used all of their broken brokenness and evil actions to actually protect Joseph's family, preserve them. They would have died in the famine had this not happened. Craziness. Do you believe that God can use any evil and suffering in this world for our ultimate good? I'll ask that again. Do you believe that God can use any evil and suffering in the world for our ultimate good? Do you have hope in that? Because guys, if not, it is impossible to find lasting joy in suffering. Because oftentimes we can't find a comforting answer for our suffering in the here and the now. We get stuck in the feel it, forget it cycle, just running around in circles. And we don't have a place to rest or an anchor to hold our peace. Let's wrap up the story. Joseph then sends his brothers back to get his father and the rest of his family and bring them to Egypt. And Jacob gets to enjoy his final years with his long lost son, Joseph. That was four chapters in two sentences. That's pretty sweet, right? <laughs> Go back and read the story. But when Jacob passes away, Joseph's brothers fear he is going to exact his revenge. That Jacob was like the one thing holding back the wrath of Joseph on to them. So they bow at his feet, begging for his forgiveness. Remind you of anything? They're around him, bowing at his feet. And Joseph does forgive them. And in tears, he says this, chapter 50, 19 through 21. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
Wow. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, what they intended for evil and was actually actions of evil, God intended for good. He used it for good. He brought about amazing good. What a statement of God's sovereignty over all things, an ability to make ultimate good out of them. That leads us to our big idea tonight, y'all. What people intend for evil, God always intends for good. What people intend for evil, God always intends for good. And this is hard to wrestle with because there's some ugly brokenness in our world, amen? There is some ugly brokenness in our world. But we know that in God's purposes and plans that he's working out, he isn't just sitting back idly watching it play out. He's not just an old man with a beard hanging out in the clouds, just watching the world burn just because it's all according to his plan. It might feel that way, but that's not reality. No. We know that God is with us even more than he was ever with Joseph. And you know how we can know that? You know what we look to to know that? The reality that Jesus came. That Jesus came to earth. He came down from heaven, entered the world that was on fire, burning itself to the ground, and he gave himself freely to be crushed, willingly, He offered himself up as a better Joseph. Willingly, the God-man stepped into being cast aside by his family, sold for a bag of coins, falsely accused of sin and blasphemy, neglected and abandoned by his followers, and wrongly condemned to death because of the hate of the crowd. Jesus chose that. He didn't have to come. But what people intend for evil, God always intends for good. And Jesus' death was the ultimate evil act. Nothing has ever been worse. The ultimate evil act intended by man that brought about the ultimate good intended by God for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says it like this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Where are the unrighteous? that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. This is what you take from that. Jesus' suffering meant our reconciliation to God. And then Romans 8, 28, you guys might, you've probably heard this one before, but in the context of suffering, we can say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's, is what God is doing in suffering. That's the answer of our question. He is working it all together for our ultimate good. But like Joseph, it might not go the way we want it to, but it is going the way God intends it to. We don't have to be stuck in the feel it, fix it, forget it cycle. We can stop and rest knowing that God is working and our suffering. So what do we do with our suffering? We'll, we'll take this one application point tonight, y'all. 
if you don't believe in Jesus tonight or you're struggling with dealing with suffering, I challenge you to really wrestle with the question, what am I to do with suffering? Because don't stay in the cycle. It's exhausting and it doesn't lead to anywhere. Instead, turn to Jesus for rest instead. Break out of the cycle. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn to him instead. He says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. A bruised reed he does not crush. He, his burden is easy and his yoke is light. He has purpose to, for us in our suffering. And that purpose is to point us to joy in him. And all who come to him will find rest. That is his promise to us in all things and especially in our suffering. Ask someone tonight, to explain it to you, the gospel to you if you don't know it, so that you can find rest and joy. And I lied. We got one more application point. Um, sorry, can't trust me. Uh, hope in God's redemption for now and for eternity. I'm sure all of us have stories of suffering in the room, whether you're in the middle of it right now or it's in the past that you still need to wrestle it through. Guys, to hope in God's redemption now, to hope in what God is wanting to work and do in your life now, you need community. You cannot do it alone. You will get blinded by the pain of suffering, by the confusion that suffering brings, because it's hard. And God has not made us to do it alone. So to hope in God's redemption now and for eternity, get into community. If you're not in a connection group this summer, get into one, get connected. You need brothers and sisters that will point you to Jesus and point you to the hope that we have in him in our suffering, that he's working it together for good. Now, I want you guys just to close your eyes for a minute and imagine this. Imagine the freedom you can have in this life, knowing that heaven is to come, knowing that God is working in your circumstance right now. Think about your circumstance right now, the suffering you're going through, that you won't be stuck in this forever. God is using this now to prepare in you what is coming an eternal weight of glory in the future. And he loves you. And he's right there beside you in the middle of it. Imagine the freedom if you can walk through the life of suffering. You have that. You can open your eyes. Think about the joy that can flow out of you, knowing that God is always with you working through your suffering. Your suffering is never purposeless. It is always purposeful. That's good news. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus... We see you in your word as a suffering savior. And we thank you for the story of Joseph and this big picture view of how you in love orchestrated all these events in your sovereignty to bring about amazing good for your people. And we believe in our stories tonight that you can do the exact same thing. You can work through all of the pain and suffering that we're doing tonight and bring about immeasurable good in our lives and in the lives around us. 
because that's how good and powerful and great of a God you are. And because of your death, we see what suffering can bring. We see that you chose the greatest suffering to bring us the greatest amount of good. Let us rest in that and praise you for that tonight. Amen.